Good evening and welcome to our event, In Conversation with Merve Emre. We'd like to thank you all for being here. It's wonderful to see so many faces. And of course, we'd like to thank Merve herself for taking the time to join us this evening to discuss her forthcoming book, Post-Discipline, Literature, Professionalism and the Crisis of the Humanities, and its relationship to her earlier work and writings. Our host this evening is Sarah Edwards, a PhD candidate here at UCL whose doctoral research explores the influence of the internet on contemporary feminist essayists and their readers. She is editor-in-chief of the journal Movable Type, and she has been the recipient of awards such as the Rossetti Prize and the T.R. Henn Prize for her experimental literary critical writing. This evening, she is in conversation with Merve to discuss the practice of reading past and present. Merve Emre is an Associate Professor of English at the University of Oxford and a truly prolific author of a rich and fascinating body of work. She traced the history of bad readers in paraliterary, the making of bad readers in post-war America, experimented with literary critical form in the Ferranti letters, and took a deep dive into the Myers-Briggs and personality testing in the Personality Brokers, which was named one of the best books of 2018 by the New York Times. Last year, she published The Annotated Mrs. Dalloway, which the Washington Post deemed as an invaluable adjunct to Wolf's haunting masterpiece. Now, please put your hands together and welcome to the stage, Sarah Edwards and Merve Emre. Thank you again so much for agreeing to do this. I'm really excited. Um, obviously, we were meant to meet back in January to talk about crisis, so really want to start there um, and pick up the conversation that, yeah, was on pause for a while. Um, I suppose, yeah, let's start with post-discipline. Um, as I understand it, it's about the deterritorialization of literary pedagogy. Um, and I'm wondering, just for those in the audience who might not have come across you talking or writing about that topic before, um, if you could begin by defining the crisis um, and telling us a little bit about that project and maybe mm -hmm. even its origins. Mm -hmm. Well, so its, it's origins uh, date back to when I was in graduate school, and I was on the job market uh, and was not very successful in the first year that I was on the job market. And I had, uh, I don't know what to call him, he wasn't a boyfriend, but he wasn't an ex-boyfriend, exactly. So he, <laughs> he was in business school at Stanford, and he said, you know, if you can't get a job, you can always come teach literature in the business school at Stanford. And I said, well, what are you talking about? And he said, the most popular class that we have here is called the moral leader, leadership and ethics through fiction. And I said, what on earth do you do in this class? And he sent me the syllabus. He sent me the assignments. And I started reading through them. And I started, you know, wondering why it was that these MBA students who almost certainly will not go on to write anything that we would consider literary. Mm. Are, they're much more likely to be writing business memos and emails and engaging in other forms of bureaucratic communication uh, and, you know, are likely only to read novels in their leisure time. Why was it that a, an array of novels, many of which we would identify as canonical novels, mm. were being mobilized in this course, in this school, and why were they yoked to that concept of moral leadership? Mm -hmm. So this, uh, this was sort of the origin of the story, uh, of, the, of the project, and I suppose it came out of uh, two related crises, the first being the crisis in the academic job market, although the question of whether or not we want to call that a crisis is an open question, I think, and the second being a kind of crisis in the purpose of literature departments, and what John Guillory would call the historical category of literature. So what counts as literature, which institutions determine what it is that is considered literature, where does literature circulate, how is it received, who participates in conversation or in discourse about literature. So that was the, that was the kind of origin point. As the project has developed, it has taken on a slightly different frame. I have been fascinated by the recent push toward interdisciplinarity, transdisciplinarity, 
toward de-disciplining or undisciplining our discipline. And this seems to me a recent phenomenon, and it seems to me within the discipline, the kind of inverse or the shadow phenomenon of teaching literature in schools of professional education. So the way to kind of couple those two prongs of it might be to say that literature has been deterritorialized in two different kinds of ways. On the one hand, the study of literature is flourishing in schools of professional education, like business schools, like medical schools, like law schools. And on the other hand, departments of literature and the discipline of literature is inviting in other kinds of disciplinary methods and objects. And this seems to me to be the really interesting crossroads at which we find ourselves, where there is a crisis not only in the material conditions under which we profess literature, but also a crisis in that category of literature, of what it means to us and what it ought to mean to us going forward. Does that begin to answer your question? Yeah, it does. And it sketches out a lot of the places I want to go. Um, so that's, that's really brilliant. Um, I suppose something that you just briefly alluded to is the, whether a crisis is even the appropriate word sometimes, or at least for some of these things. Um, and, and that's something that I was keen to ask you about. So what is it that makes sort of the crisis in humanities serious enough to warrant you know, being called a crisis? Mm -hmm. you know, what exactly is at stake, do you think? Mm -hmm. So I don't know if the use of the term crisis is necessarily determined, or I, let me say, I don't know if the appropriateness of the term crisis is necessarily determined by the seriousness of what we are facing. Because when I think of the etymology of crisis, I think of it, as marking a kind of turning point. Mm -hmm. So the question to me is more, is what we are seeing in what I am calling the post-discipline, that mm -hmm. deterritorialization of literary pedagogy, does that mark a turning point in what we think of as the category of literature? Some people would say no. So I'm thinking about Chad Wellman and Paul Ryder's recent very excellent book called Permanent Crisis which I would strongly encourage everybody to read, in which Ryder and Wellman argue that the humanities, both as a kind of umbrella term, but also within each of its subdivisions, its disciplinary subdivisions, have always been marked by crisis since their inception. And Ryder and Wellman argue that they've been marked by crisis because the kind of thinking that we do in the humanities is always going to be antagonistic to or allergic to the kind of bureaucratic, routinized, sped up, on-demand uh, thinking or structure of modernity, mm. and that this becomes increasingly clear to us under late capitalism or under what some would call neoliberalism. Mm. So that would be the argument for why the humanities are in a kind of permanent crisis. Yeah. I think that that's a very compelling uh, claim about how it is that people think about the humanities and the kinds of claims that they make for them, the kind of values that they ascribe to the humanities. But I would insist that what we're seeing now is, is different. And I would turn to another thinker who I very much admire, the literary critic and sociologist of literature, John Guillory, who in his fantastic 1993 book, Cultural Capital, argues that in fact we are seeing a kind of terminal crisis of literary study. Because to quote him, a line that I have sort of burned into the back of my brain, uh, the new professional managerial class which the university produces, no longer requires the cultural capital of the old bourgeoisie. So that's a slightly different understanding of crisis, and it would ascribe to it a kind of terminal point, right? That there will be, uh, in the very near future, perhaps already, literature will be a luxury that only very, very, very few people can afford to pursue. Against both... Wellman and Ryder, and against Guillory, I would argue that the reason I'm interested in the proliferation of literature in these ostensibly non-literary institutions is because they signal that that crisis may not in fact be terminal, <laughs> that there are people who are finding a use and who are articulating value-bearing rationales for literary study outside of the literature department. And those value-bearing rationales may look really unfamiliar and even alarming to us. And in fact, to ally ourselves with them may feel like a kind of Faustian bargain on our end, i.e. what would it mean to use literature to teach 
uh, the professional managerial elites of a business school how to conduct themselves under situations of extremely high pressure. Mm. What would it mean to use literature to teach the professional managerial workers of medical institutions how to replace a concept of care labor with an ethic of care? And so I think the question facing us is whether or not we want to look outside of literature departments to see how it is that we can imagine the crisis otherwise, Mm -hmm. and whether this is an opportunity for us to link up with those other kinds of institutions and their imagination of what it is that literature can do and the purposes to which it can be Mm -hmm. put, or whether this is a time to claim a kind of autonomy or partial autonomy for the literature department that justifies and rationalizes its purpose contra those other kinds of rationales of leadership, care, justice, Mm. et cetera. Yeah, all very moral, ethical, compass kind of tasks. Yeah, and, and, and really looking back to a moment in the early 20th century history of the institutionalization of literary history, of literary study, where, as Sean McCann argues, literature was both a discipline and an anti-discipline. It would have a set of protocols, but it would also provide for a kind of therapeutic care of the self. Mm. And so the question becomes, do we want to ally ourselves with essentially elite practices of self-care in order to save what is a materially flailing profession? Mm. Or are there different kinds of interpretive uh, hermeneutic, aesthetic, political claims that we want to make within the literature department that are very deliberately and knowingly distanced from those other kinds of rationales. Yeah. So would you say, I mean, I suppose who's feeling the effects of the mm-hmm. crisis? Is it sort of just within the academy or is that kind of quite a limited way to think about it? You know, do the ramifications, are they sort of felt? in the broad society, you think? So I would say that one way to frame the interest of the book or the central question that the book raises Mm -hmm. is why is it that within the university, literature has become so socially marginal Mm -hmm. at the same time that outside the university, we are seeing a kind of explosion Mm -hmm. in people's engagements with literature. Mm -hmm. And in fact, a real broadening of the category of what literature can cover. Mm -hmm. And, you know, as someone who is interested in sort of experimental new media forms, you must feel this acutely too, that the Mm. kinds of forms in the media that you work with (laughs) fall under the auspices of literature, but there are not always people within universities who understand it as such or can recognize it Mm -hmm. as such. So it seems to me that this is part of the crisis and the definition of the category of literature, which is how does literature as a kind of codex-bound verbal art, as Guillory calls it, Mm. come into contact with or have to renegotiate its status vis-a-vis all of these other new media forms and vis-a-vis all of these other systems of representation which people now read in a highly literary way like television or the internet but which do not seem to fall under the generic umbrella Mm. of literature per se. Mm. Do you think that's sort of why there can be quite a lot of pushback if you've got researchers presenting on tweets on forum pages do you feel like you've encountered that? Sorry, to, to turn no, the question no, over to um, you because you might be able to answer this better than I can. It's sometimes hard to judge because if I'm interacting with people working on similar stuff, mm-hmm. um, then, you know, the, the sample is a little bit skewed. Mm-hmm. Um, but I did sort of have a conversation with a journal recently when um, I pitched them something. They came to me because they wanted something about the internet and the essay. And I was like, mm-hmm. great, I know about the internet and the essay. I can, I can work right, with that. Right. And the first thing I pitched was thoroughly about essays published uh, online and then how they were edited for inclusion anthologies. Um, and that was not literary enough. Mm. So what they actually wanted <laughs> was for me to talk about um, writers who had published essay collections that could potentially have been influenced by the internet but their authors, actually the one we settled on, has barely any mm-hmm. <laughs> presence on social media. Mm-hmm. Um, so I found that quite strange, actually, mm-hmm. even when it sort of felt like there was sort of a literary push behind <laughs> what I was proposing originally. Actually, it, it didn't quite fit under this sort of rubric. Mm-hmm. Um, so I just sort of wonder, yeah, mm-hmm. you thought about that at all? Yeah, I mean, it comes down to how you think about that term, literary, mm-hmm 
right? So I know that there's at least one good Bakhtinian in the room <laughs> I, who, would, who would tell us that that is not an, it, it's not an ontological category, mm-hmm. right? They're, unlike what the deconstructionists would have us believe, there is not a concept of literariness that is grounded in something like the infinite potential, the infinite troping potential of language, whatever, that what is called literature really varies from century to century, Mm -hmm. and it varies based on the kinds of institutions that consecrate it as such, that teach people this is literature and this is not. So the example of someone commissioning an essay, I think, is a really good example of that, right? Because Mm -hmm. journals are part of that ecosystem of institutions that regulate what it is that counts and does not count as literature. Mm -hmm. So when an editor says, this is not literary enough, they are assuming a kind of socio-historical position. Mm -hmm. They are weighing in on the concept of the literary in ways that they might not even realize that they are doing, Mm -hmm. right? Um, they might just have a sort of instinctive reaction to it and say, oh, here's a tweet, it's not literary. Oh, here's something that was published in a blog, it's not literary. But behind that kind of judgment is a whole sociological infrastructure that allows them to make that judgment relatively uncritically, it sounds like. (laughs) Um, And so... Yeah, I, I, I think that pushback can always itself be read symptomatically mm-hmm. as what are the conditions under which someone feels authorized to make a claim about the appropriateness or the inappropriateness of an object as literary? Mm-hmm. What, are the, what are the assumptions about how things circulate, how they're received, how they're read, how they're produced, how they're responded to that allow for that judgment to be, to be made? Yeah. That's brilliant. Right. Okay, my next question. And now you have a response yeah. to that editor. Is it? But I mean the other thing, sorry, the reason I invoked Bakhtin was because I was just thinking about how in Bakhtin the the concept of literary language that comes out of Bakhtin is that the literary is what is produced at the intersection of a certain set of old recalcitrant discourses mm-hmm. and newer evolving discourses. And it seems to me that social media is kind of the perfect example mm-hmm. of where those new evolving discourses might be and how they might come into contact with, mm. and especially how they might come into antagonistic contact with older discourses of the literary as yeah. codex bound, as regulated by the classroom, mm-hmm. as uh, enjoying a kind of I, um, I, as there being certain limits to who can comment on it, mm. which the internet really does a good job of leveling. Yeah. <laughs> I, so it seems like that would be, you know, the, the project that you're working on seems like it would be the perfect place to mm. think about some of these questions of what counts as the literary. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this, this event was going to work well for a reason. <laughs> um, brilliant. So, I had a little bit of insight into this just before everyone had finished arriving, so I kind of know where I think the answer's going to go, but I've got to ask again. Um, So in 2015, you were one of the editors um, for the Los Angeles Review of Books uh, series No Crisis, Mm. um, which took a look at sort of the state of literary and critical thinking in the 21st century specifically. Um, And I was rereading the introduction to this series when I was preparing for this event, um, and Caleb Smith, in his introduction, suggested that critics lost their way when they lost touch with the classics, that they'd made the wrong political commitments, that their writing had become ugly and sort of jargon-ridden, and that they end up justifying austerity measures. And the part that really stood out to me most from his introduction, sort of thinking about crisis, was his suggestion that the crisis was the effect of economic and administrative decisions Mm. and not a failure of ideas Mm -hmm. so I was really interested in that language of austerity and administration Mm -hmm. economics political commitments because it does sort of evoke that precarity of of the arts of you know literature departments especially in the UK especially now Um, so I wonder if that resonates with your conception of crisis now yeah so I I think about this I was thinking about that I can't remember which um I can't remember which institution it was that recently fired or, or announced its plans to let go 
of its medievalists and early modernists and to replace them with people working in new media and critical race studies in the creative industries. And part of the really pernicious rationale was, well, we have been told that medieval studies and early modern studies are bastions of white supremacy and misogyny. And so isn't it, in fact, more progressive for us to be replacing those earlier periods with these more kind of industry-facing, extra-institutional roles? So I think that there are two responses to that, right? The first response would be to say, look, administrations are going to look to justify things in whatever way that they can. And ultimately, there was nothing any English professor could have done in order to prevent that from happening. They were going to latch on to the most convenient kinds of political justifications that they could find to do something that is essentially, uh, uh, you know, that is, that, is, that is politically quite harmful, right? So that's one reaction to have. The other reaction to have, and I should say just from the outset that I don't know what I think about these two things, so I'm just offering this to you as another way to think about it. Another reaction to have would be to say what Guillory does in Cultural Capital, which is that it was a mistake for the left to cede the definition of cultural capital to the right, and that instead of sort of systematically producing rationales that could be seized on by administrations to gut our own labor and our own labor conditions, we should have been coming up with stronger justifications for an integrated curriculum. Like I said, I don't know what I think of those. I think I probably err more on the side of the former than the latter. But I do think that one thing that is missing in much of the conversation about literary study is some concept of an integrated curriculum, is some concept of general education, is some concept of why it is that people should read a really broad array of texts that is not yoked to any kind of presentist political or social justification. And I don't think that this would have changed anything that administrations did or or are doing, right? But... I wonder what the profession itself would look like if people weren't so eager to say things like, well, you know, only 12 people read what I write anyway, so why does it matter? (laughs) Um, You know, what would it look like if we made stronger claims to speaking to a general audience or stronger claims to speaking to a a larger public Mm. um, as opposed to speaking within a very kind of narrow professional uh, institutional um, uh, arena mm. of, of, of listeners. Yeah. Have you found um, any syllabuses kind of like those that you described there? Not necessarily, you know, within a university, it could be a different kind of setup. I just wonder, mm. have you, yeah, do you, do you know of any spaces? Well, see, this is one of the things that's actually fascinating to me about doing the project on literary study in professional schools. So, part of the project that I've been working on with my really wonderful research assistant, Haley, Haley uh, Toth is that we've actually created a syllabus database where we have written to the people who teach courses in all of these professional schools and asked them to fill out a questionnaire and also asked them to send us their syllabi. Mm -hmm. And so this database is about to, we're about to release it and make it open access so that people that are interested in literary sociology can work with it. And we are doing some, well, I'm not, Haley is doing some, you know, text mining data analysis on that syllabus to see what comes out of it. And one of the things that I've noticed just from reading across those syllabi is how extraordinarily wide-ranging they are. That most of the syllabi, for instance, the, in, for instance, the moral leader class, uh, starts with the ancient Greeks and goes to Ishiguro. <laughs> and I can't imagine teaching a class that starts with the ancient Greeks and goes to Ishiguro. I would say the same thing is true of the medical humanities courses. They have an incredibly, incredibly wide range. Mm -hmm. And what's fascinating to me about it is because they have different value-bearing rationales for why they're doing what they're doing, they don't have to justify their syllabi on the basis of, say, an area. Uh, I'm teaching you uh, literature in English from 1830 to 1910, as I do to my students at Oxford, right? They don't have to justify it based on an area on a particular language or on a time period. So it's very interesting to think about how our whole profession, how our whole pedagogy might be organized differently 
if we essentially hadn't become uh, what Edward Said uh, in his 2001 essay, uh, The Return to Philology, called uh, technocratic specialists in either period or language or nation or increasingly in method. And I wonder what it might look like, for instance, to have undergraduate education that was organized you know, not around the English language. I mean, this is something I've been thinking about a lot since working with the International Booker Prize, mm-hmm. is, is you know, what would it look like if we no longer had departments that were so invested in English as the language, as the umbrella term mm-hmm. under which all their literature had to be gathered? Mm-hmm. Uh, what would it look like if we brought back some of the sub-disciplinary initiatives that were basically weeded out of literary study with its professionalization in the 20th century. So for instance, philology or oratory or even grammar. Um, what would it look like to go back to the trivium in some way and try mm-hmm. to explore that for mass education yeah. as opposed to for very, very, very small groups of people? And I think that these initiatives are actually imaginable within other nations' university systems and other nations' primary and secondary educational systems, right? Mm -hmm. Because you can't really reimagine the university without reimagining primary and secondary education. Mm -hmm. And when I think about the way things are organized in, for instance, the province of Quebec, because I taught at McGill for a little bit, or when I think about how things are organized in Germany, Mm -hmm. there are other models for organizing the study of literature that I do not think run into the same kinds of problems that ours do. Mm. But they also require a much stronger democratic socialist state with a much stronger commitment to education at every single level. So those problems of, you know, the organization of the university and the organization of the state are always going to feed one another. Yeah, um, I'm thinking about that sort of database you've now got oh, yes, all yes. those different courses. Um, I think you've come back, is it the moral leader you've come back to a couple of times? Was that the course? Oh, yes, just because that's, you know, attached, because, you know, it's connected to this ex-boyfriend, not ex-boyfriend. Thing, so I'll keep coming back to that, yeah. Yeah. No, I was just wondering, were there any courses that really stood out, you know, as like a good potential model or as like, yeah? I don't know if they're good potential models. I mean, what, what stands out for me are the courses that have kind of seeded all of the other courses. So for instance, the moral leader originated at the Harvard Business School in the 70s with a guy named Robert Coles that some of you may or may not know. He was a physician. He was very close friends with Walker Percy and William Carlos Williams. In fact, Walker Percy's last novel is dedicated to Robert Coles. He was a kind of Kennedy liberal. He wrote the cover story for The Atlantic on Ruby Bridges. Um, And he was extremely interested in using literature to teach ethics and morality. Mm -hmm. And so his course is kind of the blueprint for all of the other moral leader courses, which exist at almost every business school in the United States right now. I I am interested in how Rita Charon at at Columbia University started the whole field of narrative medicine in the United Mm -hmm. States and how her readings of Henry James have seeded the rise of what narrative medicine imagines itself to be doing across uh, across the U.S. and how this is, in fact, coming back into literature departments as a possible model of thinking about intersubjectivity and intersubjective mm-hmm. ethics. Um, and in law schools, there are those kind of big founding textbooks of law and literature that were put together Uh, by Boyd White and others in the 1970s at the University of Michigan and have really served as the basis for how those courses are imagined. Mm -hmm. So um, I I would say less that they're doing something right or something that we should be emulating and more that there are fairly uh, structured models for what's happening elsewhere such that uh, lest we want to think about the literature department as being the center of a kind of disciplined practice Mm -hmm. of, you know, hermeneutic or you know interpretive activity and everything else is being it's kind of undisciplined or chaotic other mm. and this is the argument of my first book as well really yeah yeah um yeah gosh that's really interesting um i just need to go up piece a moment narrative medicine 
Please tell me more. <laughs> well, has anyone, is, does anyone here work in medical humanities? Because usually when I talk about this stuff, there's at least one person who has, who, who does. Yes? Um, well, <laughs> a little bit? Yeah, I mean, a research group which deals with that and in uh, Complutense Madrid. Yeah. Um, at the Department of English. Yeah. And yeah, it's, it's, it's basically what you said. That, um, it was started in Colombia and the idea was to um, bring back, uh, a, a humanities based approach to yeah. the style of literature and kind of vice versa as well. Yes, exactly. This is like an encounter. Exactly. No, I think that's really right. And that that encounter is modeled on the patient doctor encounter, right? So a lot of what is stressed in Rita Charon's work, for instance, is how is it that people learn to pay attention? How is it that doctors learn to pay attention to their patients? How is it that they learn to essentially construct narrative out of being given what appears to be information? How is it that thought and feeling can be reconciled in those encounters? And Henry James becomes an important figure for Charon in figuring this out, in part because I, I imagine uh, because so many James novels are centered around these massively complicated moments of intersubjective thinking, right? Mm-hmm. I'm thinking that you're thinking what I'm thinking about you, right? <laughs> uh, and so that becomes a really interesting model for Charon to try to work out what it is that happens in any kind of interaction where someone is supposed to be telling someone else but has any kind of hesitation or any kind of scruples about telling them something directly. Mm. So I find that fascinating, and I find it fascinating when I said it's coming back into literature. Uh, Dorothy Hale, who's at the University of Berkeley, has just written a book, the name of which is escaping me, but that I'm going to Google and tell you right now. Um, because it's on my desk and I can see the cover and for some reason I can't remember I can't remember the title uh, the novel and new ethics the novel and new ethics whose final chapter has a reading of Charon and of what Charon is is doing um, and you know Hale is ultimately trying to kind of counter or say that you know Charon isn't really reading Henry James correctly but that seems to me like a less interesting claim than what it is that you have to believe literature is or what it's good for Mm -hmm. in order to read Henry James the way that Charon does, and in fact, in order to institutionalize an entire kind of subfield of literary study around that practice of reading, Mm -hmm. around that kind of ethical, intersubjective imagination. Yeah, that's really interesting. Do you think um, a lot of those courses are around sort of the moral and ethical? Is that sort of what you take away from most of those yeah, I think they I think they are around the moral, the moral the ethical I mean increasingly I think a lot of the courses that are in law schools are around mm-hmm. the are around questions of po- the political mm-hmm. around questions of justice yeah. and how it is that we enact justice yeah. um, how it is that literature gives us a certain set of interpretive tools in mm-hmm. order to be able to draw distinctions mm-hmm. uh, very kind of fine grained distinctions when we are thinking about who is deserving of what. Mm-hmm. Um, and and I think that, you know, one thing I would say is that I am not at all, I have no qualms at all with using literature to think about ethics or to think mm-hmm. about morality or to think about justice. In fact, I sort of wish more people did that. Um, the, the question becomes, how are those ideas yoked to or how are they grounded in larger institutional mm-hmm. and social contexts mm-hmm. that make it possible for only certain kinds of people to do that sort of thinking about yeah. what the literary offers. And maybe I would say that the flip side of all of this, and one of the reasons that I brought up the 92nd Street Y when we were speaking earlier, mm-hmm. is that I think at the same time that you see the concentration of a certain kind of literary ethical thinking among the elites of the professional managerial class you're also seeing these really interesting and important initiatives that are trying to broaden access to that kind of ethical and therapeutic thinking. So uh, um, uh, programs like the 92nd Street Y that are bringing literature to working class, to members of the working class that are offering continuing education or adult education classes are one example of that. Another example of it might be prison literacy initiatives, uh, which are you know really sort of taking off on the east and west coasts of the of the US. Mm-hmm. And there's a really wonderful book that I would recommend that everyone read called Reading with Patrick that is a memoir by 
a woman who went to uh, do a program called TFA, Teach for America, which is very popular in the U.S., where they basically take utterly unqualified college graduates and put them in uh, school systems that don't have enough teachers. It's a really sort of disastrous, like well-intentioned, but fairly disastrous setup. Um, but it starts with this woman participating in TFA and then learning that one of her students has been imprisoned and she starts visiting him in prison to read with him. And so it's a really kind of uh, fascinating and I think troubling look at what it means to try to expand that essentially liberal humanist therapeutic understanding of literature at the site of liberalism's most spectacular failure, which is the carceral state, right, which is the prison system. Um, and so these are the contradictions in each of these programs that I'm, that I'm interested in, which is what does it mean to take these values that I think are, you know, essentially uh, yield really productive and rich and philosophically sound or rigorous readings um, and yoke them to these particular institutional contexts? Yeah. What contradictions arise therein? Yeah, um, to kind of push for a little bit more, because I'm thinking about the political settings, obviously when you've got the aims of the cause, but within the political settings of an institution. Um, I was drawn to something that I rediscovered recently when you were writing about this sort of managerial early um, for modernism's modernity. Mm. Um, and to quote you to you, sorry. You'd written, one must not retreat from the operations of power, even if they make new and more troubling forms of inequality visible. Mm. Only then can we begin to reassert the specific importance of what we do now and why we do it. Mm. And I wonder, from your point of view, what some of those operations of power might be. Oh, I think that was just to answer the complaint that I had been getting when I was giving talks Mm. on those professional schools you know, why should we care about what's happening in those professional schools when they are the people who will go on to administer our lives and to make our lives more, uh, to make our lives harder and make it harder for us to do our jobs Mm. and deny us resources and deny us lines. Mm. Uh, Why is it that we should care about that particular class of readers if we want anything to change? And my argument would simply be that I think that that allows us to understand what it is or allows us or forces us to articulate what it is that we want to do differently if we don't want to just train the professional managerial class, which is what essentially we're doing when we teach English, right? So I think about where, you know, or or within a certain segment of higher education, that's what we're doing when we teach English. So when I think about my own students, what are they going to go on to be? Most of them are probably going to go be management consultants or something, even though they're getting English degrees, right? They're going to work in industry. They're going to, you know, be managers. Um, if, if those aren't the kinds of people that we want to produce, what is it that we need to be doing? Mm-hmm. So actually, the second half of the book, which I'm finishing now, is interested in some of those subdisciplinary categories that I was mentioning earlier. So there's a chapter on philology, There's a chapter on grammar and there's a chapter on oratory or persuasiveness Mm. more generally. And one of the things I'm interested in is how there is a class of literary workers that once used to sit at the heart of the discipline before it was thoroughly professionalized who have been pushed to the margins of it. And I'm thinking about people who teach language as opposed to those who teach literature. I'm thinking about people who teach composition as opposed to people who teach literature. I'm even interested in people who are brought in to teach, say, journalism or public writing as opposed to those tenured professors who teach literature. And part of what I wonder in the second half of the book is what would it look like if the kinds of laborers whose work was deemed merely preparatory or menial, or secretarial, were actually brought back into the fold. And if those that kind of labor was valued equally with the val- with the labor of, of literary education. Yeah. And one thing it seems to me that it would do is that, I mean, one fact just to point out is that the majority of those kinds of workers are women. Um, one thing it seems like it would do is it would have a kind of feminist politics baked into it, Mm. uh, that you are no longer treating language education, for instance, uh, as as, as something that happens prior to being given your proper higher order literary education. Mm. Um, 
So I'm interested in how we can make kind of smaller political claims for what happens within the discipline by rethinking the structure of the discipline, because you can't really solve the problem of neoliberalism, and you can't solve problems of austerity, and you can't like eliminate the Republicans or the Tory party, right, without being willing to, you know, engage in acts of considerable violence. Um, that's, I'm not advocating. Uh, but it seems to me like what you can do is think about what happens within a department, mm-hmm. within a discipline, and how intellectual labor has its own set of politics, mm-hmm. and how you can, on some smaller level, address those so that, to quote the great Marxist critic Frank Lentricchia, you're not just doing more of the same. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it seems valuable to me to not do more of the same. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I find that interesting. Um, I mean, you touched on it just then that you sort of used to get complaints when you sort of present on this sort of thing. Um, and I think you've written about it as well. I think you once talked about in, in an article somewhere, someone in the audience kind of laughing at sort of learning about these forces mm. um, as if these forces kind of delivered like a I don't know, a deficit model, like they were teaching bad readers, it was mm. a bad experience of literature. Mm-hmm. And I wonder from the other side, like what is it that, that they would prioritise, you know, the, the laughing people in the audience, what is it that they would prioritise for getting out of literature, do you think? Mm. Well, I don't think they know, because I think that laughter is a kind of knee-jerk response, right? It's, mm-hmm. it's like, look at how shallow that reading is. Look at how untutored it is. Look at how uncritical it is. But sometimes I just wonder what they think is happening in their own classrooms. Like, I mean, not to not to knock on my own students, but it takes a considerable amount of energy as a teacher, right, to try to get people to produce real thought about their literary <laughs> objects. And it's not at all clear to me that the people who read outside of the literature classroom are reading any worse mm-hmm. than the people who read within it. Um, because the one thing that you can't do when you teach, right, is like actually sit over your students' shoulders and be like, what do you think of that word? Why is it like that? Why, why, you know, like you can do it a little bit in class, but you can't be there with them. And, and students yeah. read in all sorts of ways in our classrooms mm-hmm. that we also do and that we try to disavow. Mm-hmm. Um, so I do think that that laughter is usually... If I were being psychoanalytic about it, I would say that that laughter is usually an act of projection of our own untutored, uncritical, unprofessionalized habits Mm. onto the others that we may expel them from ourselves and treat ourselves as these sort of hyper-professional readers. Although I would say that what's interesting to me now is that I feel like that figure, the specter of the amateur, is making a kind of comeback. And that people are eager to try to... Uh, revalue and revalorize all kinds of practices of amateur reading, of fandom, of bibliophilia. Mm-hmm. And I find that to be an interesting counter to the kind of hyper professionalization mm-hmm. of the 80s, 90s, and early aughts. And I think that that is a kind of counter that we could also read as speaking to these larger contextual institutional issues, which is to say, like, if people can't get hired for being very good professionals, if you do everything that you're supposed to do and you have all the credentials that you have and you still can't make a living doing the job that you've been training to do, then what what incentive is there to be a professional, right? You may as well be an amateur <laughs> and you may as well embrace all of the discourses that orbit the figure of the amateur or perhaps more generously the figure of the generalist which is opposed to the figure of the specialist yeah um do you have a sense sort of what a bad reader is obviously you sort of talked about this before you've written about it before uh but i wonder within the context of this conversation if it looks a little bit different um you know are the readers in post has been bad readers I'd be inclined to say not no I mean but but I I only you know in my first book I use that term in a very tongue-in-cheek way Mm -hmm. right I mean the whole idea is sort of what I just said that people project their own uncritical tendencies onto others and make them the bad in order for the person doing the projection to be the good so I would say that in many ways this project post-discipline is a kind of continuation of my first book in which I am interested in seeing how Uh, how reading practices that exist outside of the literature classroom Mm -hmm. have these very kind of well-worked out, very systematic uh, 
practices attend, uh, attached to them, mm. right? So yeah, I think I think you know with the caveat that that term is very tongue in cheek. <laughs> um, yes, I think that they are bad readers by 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 those standards. The yeah. laughter is what is is yeah. the giveaway. Yeah. yeah. So it's sort yeah. of the I mean the, the whole discussion really is always haunted by good reader sort of vision of what the good reader should be and what the bad reader should be I suppose yeah I mean maybe one thing to just say is like I have I have been like increasingly stunned by the fact that many academics I know seem to be embracing not reading <laughs> uh, which you know is 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 really stunning to me and and this is maybe where that earlier question we were talking about Sarah about the interface of social media with other practices of mm-hmm. reading and writing becomes interesting because I'm always, I have, a, I have a chapter on not reading, actually, in this book. And I have a kind of contrarian friend. Every time he sees an academic tweet something about, like, look at this article. I'm not reading it, but it's a piece of shit, you know? He sends it to me. And so I have this kind of auxiliary database of my post-discipline database of academics pronouncing judgments on things that they haven't even read yet. Which seems to me this unbelievably anti-intellectual exercise and I can't wrap my mind around it like what does it mean to devalue the intellectual work like the bedrock Mm. of what it is that we do in order to make a certain set usually of political and social claims and the most popular version of this that I can think of that I'm sure many people will be familiar with is you know how almost every year some article comes out about a woman not reading David Foster Wallace um, and I cannot, I cannot understand this for the, for the life of me, why it is that people who are in our profession would pronounce judgments on things prior to reading them. Um, and in fact, what I'm increasingly seeing is people claiming this as a kind of pedagogical imperative that what we teach graduate students to do is to make judgments about things having only read, say, the introduction to the book. And I am stunned by this. I am really, really stunned by this. I think it's so, so, so dangerous. Um, and so maybe that those are who I would identify as like truly bad readers, not in a tongue-in-cheek way at all, or people who just don't do the reading but have an opinion about it. And you've all, everyone's had a student like that in class, right? The guy who's just like, you know, raising his hand all the time and you just know he hasn't read a single word of the novel in front of him. But somehow that's actually become a kind of politically validated oppositional stance for our colleagues to assume. And it is so wrong. Mm. Yeah, those flash judgments, yeah, definitely. I should have saved that for the Q&A. That's my, <laughs> that's my most polemical. My most polemical belief is that people should read things. <laughs> uh, you know, it, because, sorry, let me just say one more thing about that. Because, because in some ways, like, the ability to read is itself such a marker of a particular kind of privilege, mm-hmm. right? And what we often don't consider when we have any of these debates about what we read or how we read is that they're always happening within this bubble of literacy, of people who can read, right? And you think about everybody, all the classes of people that exist outside of that bubble of literacy. Um, And you think, what does it mean to be proud of not reading something in a world where people still do not have access to the basic means of literacy? And why are we so narrow in thinking about these things. And one answer to that surely has to be that these debates are so rooted in the university that literacy is already presupposed. But were we to think more, going back to what I was saying about an integrated curriculum, were we as university educators to actually speak to secondary school teachers, to primary school teachers, were we to think of our work as coextensive with theirs, then I think the conversations we have about literacy, about reading and not reading, how to read, how not to read, would be utterly different. And also we would have a much, much, much stronger labor coalition, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, I want to sort of go on a tangent because um, yes, I can ahead. see time running away with I'm me. Sorry, no, no, no. <laughs> no, no, it's completely me. Um, I want to ask about your feminist thinking because um, obviously we've mentioned once in future feminist, mm-hmm. um, and I wonder 
does this influence at all the way you think about bad readers, the way you think about post-discipline? Like, I'm getting the sense it does, actually, when you're, t- when you're starting to talk about it more. Yeah. Um, but it's just because I've seen in your writing before questions about sort of how women's colleges taught students like Mary McCarthy, mm. Jacqueline Kennedy, to read novels, and, and also questions about Fulbright scholars. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, So, yeah, I'd, I'd really love to just give you an opportunity to... Yeah, well, what you can probably more. tell as I'm speaking about the second half of the book is that mm. feminism is ultimately, for me, a question of labor, mm-hmm. that you really can't think about a feminist politics within the institution of the university without thinking of labor and without thinking of the way that, on the one hand, certain kinds of labor are coded as feminized labor, i.e. emotional labor, uh, and, and second, how certain kinds of labor are becoming increasingly feminized, by which I mean, as the great critic Sian Nai would have it, that certain kinds of labor are being devalued such that they increasingly resemble the unwaged work that's performed within the household. Mm -hmm. And this is why the example I kept coming back to when I was talking about the second half of the book was language education. Because who is it that's often tasked with teaching children how to speak? Mm -hmm. Mothers. And they are not compensated for that in any way. And so I find a kind of analog here to the way that language educators at the university are increasingly women, are increasingly adjunctified or casualized labor, and are increasingly poorly compensated for the work that they do. And the novel that I think actually um, brings this logic to light in the most brilliant way, and the novel that is the kind of heart of that chapter in the book, is Helen DeWitt's marvelous novel, The Last Samurai, which if you haven't read, I would strongly, strongly, strongly urge everybody to read uh, it is a, I think, the best novel of the 21st century so far. And ha- has anyone read it here? One person. Okay, good. Okay, so I'll just tell you how it's structured. It's about a, a woman who goes to Oxford to get a, a PhD. Um, and she fakes all of her references and she fakes grades and she wastes all of her time studying Arabic and Aramaic and all of these different languages and she has a son whose paternity is unknown at the beginning of the novel named Ludo. And Ludo is a kind of polymath of a boy because she teaches him Greek, she teaches him Japanese, she teaches him Norwegian, and she teaches him all of this while also working as a secretary or working as a kind of adjunct laborer, uh, typing up these back issues of some kind of scientific trade magazine so that she can make money. And what's extraordinary is that that devalued work of being a typist, Mm. uh, of of working for, you know, 10 cents an hour or whatever ridiculous sum it is that she's working as, uh, takes place in the household alongside her teaching her son how to speak all of these different languages uh, so that he may have access to a particular kind of, of literacy, a particular kind of language. The ultimate irony of all of this being that within the modern university, there's actually really no place for a polymath like Ludo, uh, who knows everything but refuses to specialize in anything, right? Um, And that novel, I think, really brilliantly excavates the the logic that I'm talking about in that chapter of the book and the kind of feminist thinking about language and labor and language and disciplinarity or language um, labor and disciplinarity labor and specialization mm. that is key to the second half of the book mm. yeah um just uh, can, one more oh, thing on. one more thing okay so the next chapter i'm just gonna say no no you got me on a roll the, ne- the, the the next chapter of the book um the the author at the heart of that or the form at the heart of that is the short short story so lydia davis is at the heart of that and and lydia davis her stories are so interested in what it means to be a woman who teaches grammar mm-hmm. in universities, right? What it means to be a woman who teaches translation and because of teaching translation has to teach grammar. Uh, and what it means that grammar is, in the words of Paul Damon, the kind of sub-literary cousin to rhetoric. And Davis's stories are all interested in actually using grammar or in asserting grammar as the basis of literariness, rather than rhetoric and showing how grammar lends itself to precisely that kind of demonian troping Mm -hmm. and thus undercuts any claim to rhetoric being the basis of the literary in the first place. And that is also 100% about a certain kind of feminized Mm -hmm. labor uh, in the university, the, the, the teaching of grammar and composition. Mm-hmm. So those are the two examples that I would give to you. And again, if you haven't read Helen DeWitt and if you haven't read Lydia Davis, you must, 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 must go, go do that. Yeah. 
Yeah, and Lydia Davis has those very, very short stories as well. So very easy. Yes, very easy. In fact, one of my favorite videos of my son, my younger son, was when he was two years old. We had him uh, memorize Lydia Davis short stories. Uh, um, and there's one called, um, like, On the Phone with Mother. And it's two sentences. And it's, Gainesville, it's too bad your cousin is dead. And so there's a, I have a really great video of my, you know, two-year-old son just looking at the camera, going, Gainesville, your dead. <laughs> so, you know, it's all, it all, it's all ultimately really, all criticism is autobiographical. <laughs> Fantastic. Yeah. Um, hearing you talk about sort of, um, sort of typing up manuscripts, for instance, mm-hmm. makes me think about the Antiquity of Dalloway. Yes. If I'm not mistaken, you did type I up. did type that up, yeah. The entire I type, thing? I did type it up. Yeah. So were you were you at all? Then they asked me to do Middlemarch, and I was like, I see that. I wonder, sort of, was were you thinking about labor as you were sort of undertaking that? I mean, it's a very different kind, I imagine. Well, so I started working on that when March 2020, mm-hmm. right? So I was thinking of labor uh, in part because our children were home yeah. from school. My husband and I were both still working, and we had to split the day very evenly into four-hour chunks. So one of us would work for four hours in the morning, and the other would work for four hours in the afternoon. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, so I was thinking about labor in very much the way that DeWitt's character, Sabella, in The Last Samurai is thinking about labor, which is like really dividing up the hour uh, and thinking about imposing a wage where one does not exist. Um, although in my case, I was thinking about it really more in terms of like imposing word counts where they did not exist before. So I would think, okay, in four hours, I can type up 10 pages. Mm -hmm. I can type up and I can annotate 10 pages. Mm -hmm. Um, and if I can type up and annotate 10 pages a day, then I can be done with a first draft of this in, you know, 20 days. Mm -hmm although 20 working days, right? Um, And then I can go over it and I can, you know, allocate those four hours to different kinds of tasks like editing and revising, finding images for the book, doing all of the work that's required to produce this kind of annotated edition. Um, So yes, that was very much part of what I was thinking about. And it's interesting because your projects don't always come together conceptually in that kind of way, but the annotated Mrs. Dalloway came together with that chapter on on philology and mm. language and the kind of menial secretarial work of transcription, translation, annotation, mm-hmm. et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. Did you end up writing about the process at all in No, I didn't. I mean I speak about it. I speak about it a little bit. I think in the intro there's a kind of passing joke like, mm. you know, I said I would type the manuscript myself. But um actually, well, I you know, I am doing a piece right now for PMLA that's on producing that annotated edition and where we can find the traces of a certain kind of philological labor in the academy today. Mm. And so I imagine some of it will appear there, but no, I haven't I haven't written about it in part because I don't know if other feel, other people feel that this way, but like those four months from, you know, March to July of 2020 are just kind of a blur for me yeah. and a blur of having to always be on <laughs> either always working or always doing childcare. Mm-hmm. Um, and I find that when you're always on, it's actually hard to remember mm-hmm. what you were doing. Yeah. In any- <laughs> you know, in any sort of intense Proustian <laughs> way. Yeah. Um, still talking about Antiquity Mrs. Dalloway, um, in an interview with Public Books, you'd mentioned how you hoped the book could be many books at once. Mm-hmm. I don't think I'm misquoting that. I think it was many books at once. I'm sure. um, so a book with some sort of scholarly impetus, but also like a coffee table book. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've, I really like that because it felt you know before it came out I didn't really know what to expect and it felt sort of almost removed from your other work but actually it sounds like there kind of is like a conceptual thread that can be linked between the annotated Mrs Dalloway and 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 your other writing Mm. um but I was interested in that sort of tug and pull between the creation of a text that might not feel scholarly to an audience 
but also something that kind of anticipates readers who kind of, I don't know, are usually like are using readerly approaches that some academics might think of as sort of almost, you know, within the institution, like subject specific or mm-hmm. discipline specific. Mm-hmm. And I wonder, do you recognize that toing and throwing? Is it sort of, is it sort of there? Did you manage yeah, to no, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah, no, I'm very happy with it. I really, I, I, I think it's, you know, first of all, I should just say it's a, gorgeous artifact and that is due as much to the designers at Norton as it is to anything that I did Um, and I think it really has made me think differently about what it is a book can do Mm -hmm. I mean in part the really nice the really nice aspect about the reception of that book for me is just how many people are going back to the novel Mm -hmm. to read it and I think that you know I don't know. I mean, I think that what you're identifying is just a kind of tension that marks everything that Mm -hmm. I do now and that I'm always thinking about, which is how much does one commit to the profession of the scholar Mm -hmm. and how much does one try to create something that only you and you alone authorize as a Mm -hmm. critic. Um, And I think that when, you know, when I look at... uh, trying to figure out how to say this in a way that isn't throwing, you know, I I don't want to come off as I'm, I don't want to criticize other scholars, right? I, 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 um, and I certainly don't want to suggest that what I'm doing is the only, is, you know, the only way to, to do something. Um, but I do think that many scholars tend to accept their audiences as built in, Mm -hmm. So when I mentioned earlier the kind of moaning that I often hear from people, well, only 12 people read our work anyway, right? I wonder if we have become a little bit too complacent mm-hmm. with that assumption and if there are ways to switch up our genres such that 12 people can become 120 or 12 people can become 12,000 or 12 people can become 12 million. Um, and I wonder to what degree our professional apparatuses are actually scholarly mm. and to what degree they are merely professional. Mm. Uh, and I think that that is not something that we often think about. Yeah. So I have been, you know, that's just to say, absolutely, I feel that tension. I feel that to and fro where I think it is formally visible or stylistically visible in the book is that the introduction mm. is a very kind of, humanist introduction whereas the footnotes mm-hmm. are quite citational um, and that's one place where I feel that tension but also you know one thing I was thinking was well what's the difference between what an introduction does and what a footnote does right mm-hmm. an introduction is supposed to just get people interested and pull them in and offer them some way to orient themselves what they're thinking what they're feeling mm-hmm. to this novel um, Whereas a footnote is supposed to give people who want more information, be that historical, be it interpretive, uh, be it philological, etymological, is supposed to give those people more information so that they can learn more. And so it seems like they're serving two different functions and can be made to do that work of toing and froing within a single object. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, I know I have to uh, wrap up, but I want to go back to something you said there about complacency um, and sort of shirking complacency and maybe um, think about futures for reading very briefly. Um, Mm -hmm. Because I was just thinking, I mean, you've experimented with collective criticism. That is the Ferrante letters where you sort of have letters between you and three Mm -hmm. other critics. Um, And and, I mean, that sort of does take literary criticism sort of out of the Mm -hmm. kind of Mm -hmm. stuffy patat potentially stuffy, (laughs) Um, you know, literary critical books we might be quite used to and puts it in a format that suddenly feels very, very accessible. And I was also thinking, you know, you've talked about sort of sociological methods and how those might actually open up the subject like Mm -hmm. a new future. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, So I suppose, yeah, this is sort of where I'm coming from and I'm wondering, you know, what you think the sort of future of reading could look like mm. say what it should or, or will gosh but, that's such an like. impossible I mean that's <laughs> such an impossible question I mean the the pessimist in me mm. would say that really 
we are simply going to dwindle mm-hmm. institutionally and materially to the point where there will be a handful of elite institutions where wealthy people can go study literature and that will be it. Mm-hmm. And perhaps countermanding that, there will be a burgeoning extra institutional public sphere for a certain kind of generalist, mm-hmm. uh, something between an amateur and a professional uh, study of of literature. You know, the more optimistic part of me believes that if we address non-professional readers Mm -hmm. in terms that are challenging but not condescending, Mm -hmm. there are inroads that our criticism can make Mm -hmm. and that it can be, as Sharon Marcus says, it can be scholarly without being academic. And so I've been thinking about this a lot because I'm working on another book at the same time called Love and Other Useless Pursuits. Mm -hmm. And I'm finishing up a chapter right now that's on Emerson and Goethe and that's interested in the idea of love as a kind of aesthetic education. So Emerson has this great short essay called Love in which he basically articulates how it is that falling passionately in love teaches you how to be the ideal Kantian subject of aesthetic judgment. (laughs) It teaches you how to be seduced by charm and then how to transcend charm through the use of your reason to become a kind of disinterested reasoning subject. And he wants to kind of yoke the history of aesthetics to the history of love as Kant himself does in his polemical essay, Conjectures on the Beginning of Human History. And so I've been working on kind of unraveling this argument that Emerson makes and that he's kind of stealing from Goethe. And what I've been trying to figure out is like, okay, how can you make these fairly complicated arguments about American transcendentalism and German idealism on the one hand, but also just like link it to stuff that everybody has felt, Mm -hmm. right? So how do we understand the fact that you can be super, super, super attracted to a person for about like, eight to ten months and then get bored very quickly and like ethically what do you do about that Mm -hmm. right how do you understand why it is that even years and years and years after a breakup thinking about those initial moments of meeting a person can still take on that kind of golden proustian charge to it even if at the same time you can think well i never want to be there again Mm. right um So, you know, there are certain basic issues that I think literature is very good at addressing, among them, you know, love, death, (laughs) faith, family, Mm -hmm. ethics, morality, justice, etc., all of those things that we've already discussed. Mm -hmm. And I think that there is a kind of avenue for criticism to orient itself to those questions in such a way that it remains philosophically insightful, Mm -hmm but it does not have to remain insular. But like I said, that is me at my most optimistic, and I don't always feel optimistic. (laughs) So maybe we can leave it on that. Yeah, so I think that's a good place to end. Very much looking forward to that book. Um, Thank you so much. Thank Um, you for your wonderful (laughs) question.